on the inside, I suffered a lot of anxiety. I doubted myself a lot. And the hangovers were just like, got worse and worse and worse. Mm. And it just began to feel like, why am I using this substance, which I know is contributing to my anxiety, which was a deeper kind of like existential disease, which I addressed by starting the newness and starting to put more of the work I really cared about out into the world. But as I began to go through that process, I realized that alcohol was going to impede me from actually having the confidence and the energy and the passion to really pursue on following through on my dreams and on following through on my life. You're listening to This Life Explains It All with the creators of Vera, your guide for navigating a conscious life. We're Stefania Romeo and Catherine Griffiths. This Life Explains It All was created out of belief that our life experience is our greatest teacher. And as soul sisters and intuitives, we've spent the past decade completely obsessed with better understanding our minds and our bodies, all while running a mile a minute with busy careers as leaders in the tech startup world. On this podcast, we are bringing you the insights and lessons that have changed our lives with the thought leaders, healers, and dreamers behind them. We're discussing wellness practices, healing methods, and experiences that get us to think differently about life and live empowered. Whether you want to uplevel your health, your career, your relationship, or are going through changes to your life path, this information can help you get there and let you know that we're right here with you. We believe life isn't meant to be lived linear, and no matter where you are right now, you're right on time. Today, we have Ruby Warrington on the podcast. We're so excited for this interview. Ruby is a thought leader, author, and entrepreneur. She founded The Numinous back in 2013 and started a movement. For those of you who don't know, The Numinous is a resource for what she calls emotional intelligence for the now age. It's astrology, spirituality, all really grounded in what we're really dealing with in life and applicable to the things we have going on. Her approach to spirituality is through the lens of a material girl in a mystical world, which is the name of her first book, where she explores her own journey toward discovering personal enlightenment in every area of life. And today we're talking about her most recent book, Sober Curious, which I just read, and it's so good. And Sober Curious takes us on a journey of exploring what it would be like to change our relationship with alcohol for a reason that she realized it's used as a stand-in for joy, inspiration, confidence, and connection. She wanted to see what life would be like if she removed that stand-in and explored finding it all on her own, just through herself. And she learned a lot, and I learned a lot from reading her book and from listening to her on this episode. Yeah. So before we get into the interview, we want to talk a little bit about the idea of getting sober curious and how we integrate alcohol in our lives. As this episode comes out, we know a lot of people are in the midst of dry January or maybe just detoxing after the holidays. So we thought it was the perfect time for this conversation. So Kat and I have been talking a lot about our own individual relationships with alcohol because we each have a different experience with it. Kat, you've really been revisiting your own relationship with alcohol this year. What have you been doing? I've been doing a lot of reflecting this year, and I think it's coincided with a lot of the work that we've been doing together, but then also some of the reflecting I've been doing on myself through reprogramming over the subconscious mind and just looking a bit more inward. And through that, I've 
realize that I do have probably a quite an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. So I was looking back and I'm like, when did I start this? And it was actually at, at an early age, at the age of 14. And it kind of, which is pretty young now that I look back at it, it started then and it kind of just from that point just became a big player in my life. I loved alcohol. I loved the way that it made me feel. I think it made me feel more confident. It made me excited. It helped me with things like social anxiety. And it really wasn't a problem for me at all. It wasn't affecting my life or my relationships or anything in a, in a negative way at the time or so I thought. But over the last year, my priorities started to change in terms of, you know, who I want to be and how alcohol is actually holding me back from those things. So then I looked at how is alcohol serving me? What is it giving me that I feel like I can't get myself? And when I asked myself that question, I actually found that it's giving me quite a few things that I perhaps didn't realize before. So what's it giving you? So it's giving me a sense of confidence in social situations one of the big things that I realized that it's giving me is the ability to share my feelings because I'm quite, as you know, Stefania, I'm quite closed off or I can be quite closed off with like my true feelings. So when I drink alcohol, I feel a little bit, I feel more relaxed and I feel like I can just share whatever, but then I regret it the next day because I don't do it intentionally. Yeah. Like I'm not doing it intentionally. I'm not doing it. I'm not delivering it in the way that I would have wanted to. It also gives me the sense of inspiration too for creativity. Like when I'm like, oh, like I really just want to think of something. I'll have a glass of wine or like, and then the words will come out. So it's really this like crux for so many things. And that was kind of a scary realization. So because of that, I've really changed the way that I interact with it. Like it's not like I'm completely done because I still enjoy a glass of wine I think a good disclaimer here is like we still, you know, have alcohol in our lives and we're drinking, but we've been taking another look at how do we be intentional about it. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not giving up alcohol. That's not what I'm doing or trying to do. It's more changing the relationship with it. So what I found too in the last year is that I am getting so much anxiety the next day, which it wasn't really present before. I didn't have anxiety over it. So it's more like the trade-off. Is it worth it? And I think a lot of us have been there and used alcohol, even if we're not even doing it consciously and we're just like at an event or whatever, to ease social anxiety or to make us feel more comfortable. And I think that when you put yourself out there and you remove whatever it may be, a substance or tool that's like sort of guiding you or as a crutch in those types of situations, then you just become more powerful and you figure out how to do it on your own and become more confident and like not need that. Exactly. It's like empowering. It's an empowering feeling. I know when I first started playing around with this, like, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm only going to have one or two. I left feeling like I was on top of the world. I'm like, oh my God, I can do anything because that is very hard for me to do. Like it's not. Why do you think it's hard for you to just have one or two? Because I think that there are people in both camps where it's like, okay, it's no big deal. I'm not drinking or I'm having one. And then others where it's like, oh, I either have to not drink or like I can't stop myself. What do you think it is? Yeah, I know. I, I think about that a lot. I don't know. I don't know what it is. 
my theory on it is that some people have programmed their brain in a deeper way than others. Like since I started drinking and discovering alcohol at 14, in that moment, I programmed my brain to say, this substance makes me feel great. It makes me feel on top of the world. So now my brain from that age programmed into thinking that. And then I kept teaching it over and over again by doing it so much that that's what it learned. So it's difficult now because when I have two, my brain goes into that mode where it's like, or I go into that mode where I'm like, woo, I just want to keep going. This is amazing. This is so much fun. I don't stop. So I think it's something to do with the programming of your brain. I think that there could also be some chemical things in the body. Like I feel like I kind of feel it in my stomach once I have had two and I'm just, it's just like this feeling where I'm like, woo. And I don't want the, I guess it's like, I don't want this fun to stop. I want it to keep going. And I feel like it has to keep going only if I have more. Do you feel like you're like escaping a reality? Probably. I just, that just like came into my mind. It's like, if you're saying, okay, I want to keep this feeling, is it sort of like an escape? Probably. Yeah. Cause it's like a really heightened, exciting feeling. So I want that to stay. And sometimes in everyday life, that doesn't like, that's not a realistic feeling. And I'm kind of an all or nothing person anyway. Like I'm either like really, really excited and really happy, or I'm like really, really the other way I'm, and I'm, that's something that I'm working on, but like, it's like being okay with the contentment of life and being okay with the balance and not needing to seek out these like crazy emotions on one way or the other. Yeah. Because you, I know that you have a different experience from me and I've always been like, I don't know, like how do you just want to stop and you're fine even just hanging out longer, but not having more drinks. And, you know, we're very different in that way, but I've always been curious about that too. Like, what is the difference? Yeah. I mean, like, to be honest, I actually feel like I'm lucky in that my body's like physiological response is that okay, Stefania, like that's enough for you. Like you're not even going to enjoy having anything else because you're going to be sick. And so like, I've always felt that way. Like after I have one or two drinks, I know that if I continue, I will be sick. And I like, it, it sort of just like starts happening. So I feel like in that way, I'm lucky in that. I don't know if it's like that I'm in tune with that and I can hear my body talking to me in that way or that I'm just set up differently. But yeah, I just like don't feel great even in the moment. But it was definitely like a journey because I feel like when I was younger, I would drink more or party more because that's what people were doing. And I even think like when I look back on it, it makes me sad a little bit now. But like I feel like I was even like peer pressured a little bit and didn't have the confidence to go against it. Like, you know, if I was out and not drinking or not drinking so much and being kind of made to feel that I wasn't doing something that like the part of the group was doing. And like I just didn't have the confidence, I guess. But I guess you just get that with you get that with age and you get that with life experience. And the other thing is when we were younger, I feel like we would drink really disgusting alcohol and even in college and like before we knew each other. And that just never appealed to me. I was just like, I do not want to drink for the sake of getting drunk and drinking disgusting alcohol is just something I don't want to do. So I even started like when I was totally broke in New York and didn't have a lot of money, like I would order like more expensive alcohol because I knew it wouldn't make me feel sick. <laughs> but I think that's another thing too. Like I was like, okay, I can appreciate the art form of a spirit wine, whatever, but like I don't like the gross stuff. But yeah, I think it's just like 
reevaluating it. And I think this is very common as you get older too. It's like, is it worth it? I think the part that I'm in now is like the uncomfortable part where I've built up this identity of myself for so long. So it's tricky to all of a sudden change that and be like, oh, actually, I'm not interested in drinking tonight. Or can we do something else like a walk or, you know, I have like my safe people, I guess, that I can do that with. And then other people in my life that will not like that. So it's just like dealing with that uncomfortable part of it. It's interesting because we're not going to go so deep on this in this episode, but I think something that we can explore going forward as I've been researching more and just learning more about all of this is that like there are a lot of other things in our environments that are contributing to endocrine disruption, like hormone disruption in our bodies that when we're not fully like stable in that way, alcohol can affect us even more. So an example could be, you know, if you're using a lot of products on your body that are not clean. So if they're not non-toxic or they have like artificial fragrance or artificial ingredients, that can cause hormone disruption in our bodies and then create an environment in our bodies where we're more susceptible to alcohol affecting us in this way or any substance affecting us in this way, even like something like caffeine or even like all of the EMFs, the electromagnetic frequencies from all of our devices also create hormone disruption in our bodies. And so when we have hormone disruption in our bodies and we're not sort of fully balanced in that way, anything that you put in your body, whether it be alcohol, caffeine, like other drugs, like can impact you in a way that doesn't serve you more than if, you know, you're fully stable, your systems in your body are all sort of fully stabilized. So I think about that a lot too. Yeah, that's such a good point. My brother actually doesn't drink. He just stopped randomly at... I think it was like 10 years ago and he's never really talked. I, I want to dig into it more, but he's never really talked about it. He just says he hates the hangovers and just completely stopped. But he's an all or nothing type as well. Like if he did have a drink tonight, for example, he would probably have 10, but he can certainly have none and it's fine. So. All right. Well, let's get to the interview and get Ruby's thoughts on all of this stuff. So in this interview, we are talking about integrating spirituality into our lives and what tools help us go deeper, how Ruby brings something different to the space as an entrepreneur with a different kind of story to tell. We talk about how becoming sober curious has made her feel more confident, joyful, have better relationships, and excel in her career. What are the first steps to becoming sober curious and how do we get through some of those uncomfortable, what she calls sober firsts? We also talked about relationships. Ruby shares about her marriage of 20 years, her take on how to stay in a happy relationship across the span of time. We talk about how she took a controversial relationship sabbatical from her marriage and recognizes it as something really great, as well as her decision and thought process on whether to have children. Yeah, Ruby is a bright light of a human that questions the status quo, and she goes deeper with a curiosity that's optimistic and that has some real depth. Let's get into it. Can you just give us an overview of how you look at your work and what you do and how you got into it? Well, I guess primarily I see myself as a reporter because that's what my career was before I Mm -hmm. kind of moved into entrepreneurship and sort of launched all these different things and started working on these different projects. The through line is honestly reporting. Like I was a lifestyle journalist. And I think even as a kid, 
I remember my mum, she used to call me Radio Ruby because I would just like <laughs> go around like reporting on everything that was going on. Yeah. This is happening. This is happening. And I think it kind of annoyed her actually because <laughs> I remember being a really shy and quiet kid. So maybe that was like shut down a little bit. I don't uh, know. Okay. But I think I just always had this very much an observer's kind of like view on the world. Mm-hmm. And I was really drawn to working for ma- in magazines when I graduated college or when I was going to college. So that was my career prior to moving to New York in 2012, which is when I launched The Numinous. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to have my own magazine so I could write about the things that I really found interesting. And, yeah. You know, apply those skills that I had developed in my corporate career to a subject I found really interesting, which was astrology, tarot, all things mystical, everything to do with spirituality, but made very modern and accessible. Mm -hmm. It just seems to me like back then, and I say back then as if it was like so long ago, but actually if you think about in terms of the way that media has changed in the past seven, eight years, we didn't have Instagram when I launched The Numinous, you know? You really still had to, and and even this was so much easier than prior pre-internet right you still had to search online go find a website like you weren't getting served information right based on your preferences mm-hmm. constantly so you were really you had to really seek out all of the information on these subjects and there was very little particularly presented in a visually appealing way on all these things I found so interesting to the extent that having an interest in these kind of subjects really marked you out as kind of quite crunchy and a bit woo-woo and all of that stuff and it just seemed like that was a real barrier to entry for Mm -hmm. a lot of people who would be really interested and could get a lot of value Mm -hmm. out of learning about these things but there was a lot of stigma attached to it I've always had this innate ability to kind of spot like this is the thing that everyone's going to be talking about next yeah and the difference with what I'm doing now is that I'm reporting on stuff that I personally found to be transformational, super interesting, that I think is progressive in terms of where we're going as a society. Whereas when I was using that in magazine land, it was writing about fashion shows or, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like kind of social trends, but in a much more commercialized sense. Mm-hmm. So you ta- you mentioned the stigma. And I mm. feel like even though people in general have like come a long way since 2012 or in the past few years, like there is some of that still right now. How did you go up against that stigma or overcome it? And like, how do you think about it today versus then? It's really interesting because there still is, right? Yeah. (laughs) Although I do think it's changing rapidly. Yeah. And it's very different to how it was seven, eight years Mm -hmm. ago. I think that there's been an injustice done to us as humans for having been denied access to this information. Yeah. So many of these things like ancient healing tools that the ancients discovered were amazing ways to help us know about ourselves, help us connect to other people, help us understand our place in the universe. Mm -hmm. And so part of my kind of like confronting the stigma has been fueled by anger as to like, how dare you make these presumptions about the kind of person I am, Mm -hmm. about my levels of intelligence Mm -hmm. or my levels of kind of discernment based on the fact that I found these tools to be really helpful to me. Yeah. So some of it's coming from a place of anger. Some Mm. of it's coming from a kind of feminist place because actually these are very quote unquote sort of feminine art forms, healing arts, Mm -hmm. which have been totally, you know, the idea of healing and well-being has been completely co-opted by the medical industrial complex to the extent that I mean, we, we can all be our own healers, right? Yeah. Of course, there are certain scenarios and emergency situations when modern medicine is absolutely the route to go mm-hmm. and is life-saving, absolutely. But then for many of our sort of 
you know, the less, like the autoimmune conditions that so many people are suffering now, mental mm-hmm. health issues, emotional health issues, like all of these things, there are so many tools available to us which have been made not available yeah. because actually they're innately human tools that we mm-hmm. don't need to, we can't package up and sell mm-hmm. necessarily. Yeah. So there's a mm-hmm. slightly feminist kind of like yeah. fuel to this as well. Um, and yeah, even thinking back to like, you know, the witch trials when so many women who practiced these arts were basically eradicated from society. And mm-hmm. then recently I've even been thinking about what the impact of that period when all of these women were being persecuted and killed for practicing the healing arts. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about how many orphans were created in those situations mm-hmm. and like the actual bigger societal impact of that period in history, which hasn't really been spoken about that much. Yeah. It and when I think mm-hmm. about like the injustice, this is what I mean about the injustices that have been done as a result of these tools and these subject matters being kind of covered up. And I think a lot, of, a lot of the reasoning they've been belittled and made a kind of a laughing stock mm-hmm. is to keep people away from them. Yeah. To stop people from, finding these practices and using them as yeah. tools for empowerment. So, yeah, you catch, I mean, I don't know if I'd have even been talking about it in these terms just a couple of years ago, but mm-hmm. in a way, I mean, the response to my first book, Material Girl Mystical World, which presented, which spoke about my journey with using many of these things in my life was mixed, you know. Mm-hmm. There were lots of people who were in my community who were like, this is amazing, thank you. It's giving me permission to investigate and use these tools and it was there were many who rolled their eyes and laughed at it Mm. and I was shocked actually that people are still so closed-minded and still have so many so much stigma and so many judgments and preconceptions about anyone who's interested in these subjects there's a lot being spoken of in wellness now about how when it comes to mental health and emotional health actually we still have to go to our body because so much of our, so many of our, well, our emotions are, we feel them in our bodies, yeah. they're held in our bodies. And so finding ways to, you know, move emotions through can be, is, is a vital part of that whole journey as well. Yeah. I found breath work really useful, mm-hmm. especially like I suffer from anxiety. That's like sort of like the thing that I'm always kind of working on. And I feel like breath work has been so helpful for that and just like being calm and grounded. We definitely wanted to get into Sober Curious and talk to you about Mm -hmm. that. When Kat and I first discovered you and your work and the book, we talked about it a lot because we have had very different kind of experiences or different kind of relationships to alcohol. I'll let Kat kind of speak to hers and and questions she has for you. But like, for me, I've always been really interested in the, the idea of like, why do we have different relationships to alcohol? I've always been someone that's like never been so into it and have felt like, you know, I enjoy to like have like a great glass of wine, but I'm fine to like have one. Mm-hmm. And as a young adult, when like everyone was drinking a lot and partying a lot, like I, I dreaded it. I was like, mm-hmm. oh God, now I'm going to have to drink, but I would do it because I wanted to fit in. Mm-hmm. So, and, and Kat's experience was a little bit different. So how did you embark on the sober curious journey? Well, my experience as a young adult was the opposite of yours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kat, that's how mine was as well <laughs> yeah um, mine was I, yeah I didn't drink all through my teens and through college but largely because I was in an extremely controlling relationship with a guy who basically wouldn't let me drink it was just it was a very challenging time for me and I've written about it in both my books but um I kind of came out of that relationship alcohol was something that helped me mm-hmm. actually escape from that yeah. relationship I it was at the end of my college years and I had one friend there in particular who was really kind of like urging me to leave him 
which was great. And a part of what everyone was doing then was drinking a lot. And so I really dove into it. And in a way, I partly credit alcohol with giving me the confidence to actually go, you yeah. know, fuck it. Get yeah. Out of here, you know? yeah. It was really good in that sense. Yeah. But looking back, I can say that I very quickly formed an attachment to alcohol, but my drinking never looked like what problem we think problem drinking looks mm-hmm. like, right? I never drank more than two nights in a row. I would binge at the weekends, but then so was everyone else I knew, and they were all drinking even more than me a lot mm-hmm. of the time. And occasionally I would be taking drugs as well. I've, I mean, other drugs because alcohol is a drug, mm-hmm. but other people I knew were doing way more of that as well. So there's that whole thing. Like we obviously compare ourselves to the people in the environment. I never thought my drinking was problematic because I was, wasn't drinking nearly as much as other people. And it wasn't preventing me from having, I had a killer career. Mm-hmm. Like I had a great relationship. Like mm-hmm. we bought a house, like all these things, ticking all these kind of external boxes. So alcohol wasn't preventing me from living my life or like being quote unquote successful. And on the inside, I suffered a lot of anxiety. I doubted myself a lot. And the hangovers were just like, got worse and worse and worse. Mm. And it just began to feel like, why am I using this substance, which I know is contributing to my anxiety, which I know is ultimately kind of eroding the quality of my life, even though I have all these great things going on, like none of it felt good. And ultimately, that was a deeper kind of like existential disease, which I addressed by quitting my corporate job and starting the newness and starting to put more of the work I really cared about out into the world. But as I began to go through that process, I realized that alcohol was going to impede me from actually having the confidence and the energy and the passion to really pursue on following through on my dreams and on following through on my life. Because that takes so much confidence. Like, yeah. you guys know, anyone who's yeah. an entrepreneur, particularly solopreneur, knows it takes so much confidence, so mm-hmm. much drive, so much passion, so much energy to get something off the ground. Yeah. And the more I invested in that, the more I realized, and it became very obvious to me that actually alcohol was something I had used to fit in, mm-hmm. to feel more confident, but also to kind of keep me satisfied with the life that I had. Even though that life looks on paper amazing, mm-hmm. it was not my life. It wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. You know? mm-hmm. And so I think after moving to New York, particularly after launching the Numinous and getting really in engaged and using all these practices in my life I began to realize that alcohol was not something that could come with me Mm -hmm. as part of the journey you know and I called it getting sober curious because it began just as a lot of questions in my mind why Mm. do I use this when I know it's going to make me feel this way why is it sometimes really hard for me to say no am Mm -hmm. I an alcoholic wait AA doesn't resonate with me where do I go then Mm -hmm. like all these questions began to demand some very solid answers Mm -hmm. and so it was about five years into that process that I actually started kind of talking about it out loud I started an event series here in New York which was hugely popular from the get-go and I Mm -hmm. realized that actually wow there are so many more people (laughs) than would probably ever have spoken about it or certainly than would ever find their way to AA or think that they or identify with the term alcoholic who were actually experiencing many of the same questions yeah and conflicts that I had with booze Mm -hmm. so yeah Kat is that more like your experience yeah yeah definitely it's like exactly I remember I started drinking quite young actually I was around it a lot so at a very early age I was using alcohol for a lot of different things like confidence fitting in socially and I didn't even realize it and it wasn't 
really a problem for me until probably the last couple of years when I like the hangovers, like you were saying, just started getting so much worse. It felt like, like really just such bad anxiety. Like this is not like, why am I making myself feel this way? And I've gotten a lot better with it. And your book has definitely helped me just understand and have some tools to kind of go through that, but it just changed. And I think a lot of it is like making big decisions, like decisions on career. It's so hard to make those types of decisions when the drinking is like that. And so, yeah, I completely relate to pretty much everything that you were, that you're saying. And I guess the hardest thing for me is right now is I, I don't have a problem with it alone or I'm totally fine not drinking it in that way. I think it's the social settings because it's just like what I've been programming to do for years and years, like networking events, even just like socializing with friends. How did you get around that aspect of it? Well, yeah, I mean, so much easier now and really only in the past yeah. year. All these amazing drinks yeah. are coming onto the market. There's all these mm-hmm. now sober bars happening. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that more people are talking about it makes you means you're going to get less questions mm-hmm. if you're mm-hmm. the only non-drinker at the party, which is often the case for many people. Yeah. So in the beginning, it was just uncomfortable and weird mm-hmm. and painful. Yeah. And I just had to go through it. Like that's, you know, I talk in the book about the importance actually of doing sober first and the yeah. importance of not using not drinking as an excuse to not go out and just kind mm-hmm. of like putting yourself into it and yeah, yeah some of those situations are not really going to be fun and in that mm-hmm. case you just leave mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know and, and just kind of really focusing for me one of the big ones was really really focusing on all of the things I wanted to cultivate in my life all the mm-hmm. things that are really important to me mm-hmm. you know having a career that means something to me Having mm-hmm. the energy, you mentioned decision-making. Oh, my God, I get such bad decision decision fatigue, and I think that's common for all entrepreneurs. When the buck yeah. stops with you, and you're, you're, every decision is on your plate, that takes so much energy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I need so much sleep, right? And it needs to be good, deep sleep, or I'm not – I'm going to just get spun out by the, the sheer volume of decisions I have to make on a daily basis. So just knowing – just prioritize like really knowing what my priorities are and having them front of mind in those situations when it can feel it's so much easier to go with the flow and so much easier not to stand out and so much easier not to have to confront other people's discomfort with your decision not to drink because that's a big one right mm-hmm. yeah. they are uncomfortable and so they're projecting that onto you as the non-drinker yeah <laughs> like oh you're not going to drink with me or like you just feel yeah. you feel alienated a little exactly. bit yeah exactly. yeah but I also think you know thankfully I gravitated towards spending more time with people I knew who wouldn't you knew weren't that interested mm-hmm. once you yeah. start talking about it you know, speaking again from my own experience, I was just really relieved that there were plenty of other people in my social circle who would be like, oh, great. Okay. Yeah. I'm going, let's go for dinner. It'll give me a night off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. like people who actually were grateful for the fact that they could now have someone to not drink with. Yeah. Yeah. I have like my safe people <laughs> that are like, okay, I won't be drinking a lot with this person. <laughs> I feel like yeah. there's the other side too of like the benefit being okay so like if you're not drinking maybe at the beginning or you know when we're younger feeling like a little bit more alienated but then you save yourself from some of those things that I think a lot of people especially when you're younger go through like the next day where you're like 
did I say something stupid? You know, especially mm. if you're like, I remember that was like a turning point for me where I'm like, I'm done with this. I don't want to wake up. I mean, I already have anxiety and I'm worried about everything I'm doing. So <laughs> I'm like, I wake up and then be like, oh my God, did I say something stupid? Or did I act in a way that like, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to act in. And that felt like not, that feels not worth it yeah. either. You know, it's just a whole other layer of anxiety talking about like, particularly, you know, it's obviously really sped up in the past three years, but there are so many big problems there are so many big mm-hmm. things to be worried about right yeah. now right we can't just yeah. like skip over that mm-hmm. the the band-aid which alcohol can provide to some of those bigger kind of like anxieties it wears off really fast and it doesn't actually do a really mm-hmm. good job of covering them up anyway because it's just too much so yeah. it just doesn't work like yeah. ultimately and mm-hmm. I think that our work as individuals now is to find ways to relax, unwind, switch off, to, to manage our anxiety that are actually boost our health and well-being. And I think that's one reason why the, the wellness movement is gaining so much traction mm-hmm. because people are finding other tools in that movement and in that industry that can provide some of the things they were looking for in alcohol, mm-hmm. but without the negative side effects. Definitely. And I know that you talked about this as well in your book about how alcohol was impacting your spiritual journey. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it was more that my spiritual journey was impacting my alcohol intake. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like you didn't want to have. Right. As I said, I moved to New York, started working on the numinous and started engaging with many of these practices. And so now my Friday night activity was a breathwork circle or a moon gathering or, you know, a story medicine circle. And the people I was meeting, there was no alcohol being served. And the people who were being attracted to those kind of events also were not interested in checking out. They wanted to check more deeply in. And so I was making new connections and finding all these. And so it just sort of was like, why would I drink? Drinking just felt so kind of basic. Mm -hmm. by comparison as a way to socialize or Mm -hmm. as a way to kind of like engage with other people Mm -hmm. it just kind of started to feel really basic and then there were the hangovers and then the deeper piece was that yeah you know I hadn't ever dealt with the fallout from that relationship that I mentioned I hadn't Mm -hmm. ever dealt with the fact that the reason I got into that relationship because I had all this unhealed trauma around my parents divorce and just hadn't looked at these things Mm -hmm. and so now they were just kind of bubbling up because I'd been suppressing them and, and kind of like burying them under all my drinking for so long, they were now burying up to be healed. And I found practitioners, hypnosis ther- therapy, like the breath work again, you know, even my yoga practice, my meditation practice, mm-hmm. journaling, all these other ways to kind of process a lot of the, the negative experiences of my life that had just been kind of sitting there in my body, like mm-hmm. contributing mm-hmm. to my anxiety, contributing to my low self-esteem, but unexamined. Yeah. So... It was double, like I said, there was, I was finding all these other ways to socialize, relax and unwind and healing all the stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> that I've been covering up with alcohol. So slowly mm-hmm. and slowly, it's a process. It's not like flick a switch and this all kind of falls into place over the period of, yeah, 2012 onwards, yeah. the past seven years, mm-hmm. just very slowly getting to a place where actually I don't, I don't need alcohol for anything. Mm-hmm. So rather than it now being like, I'm denying myself alcohol, it's like that substance literally has no use for me now. Are there things that you do to kind of, I guess, not sort of alienate someone or make someone else feel like there's a judgment on them for doing it? Because that's something that I have thought about. It's like if I, and I've encountered, Mm -hmm. if I'm choosing not to drink, or even if I'm just choosing to have one drink, I don't want to make someone who isn't there feel like there's a judgment. 
So how do you approach it's that? It's really, really tricky. Yeah. There basically always is going to be some judgment on both sides, I think. They're just yeah. <laughs> like two totally different states. Yeah. And not necessarily even negative judgment. Yeah. Like the word judgment has these negative connotations, right? But you're judging, you're appraising someone else's behavior and choices. Like we just do that naturally. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so my one thing is to like not judge your judgment. Mm-hmm. Right? If it's yeah. coming up, just know that it's natural and that it doesn't mean the end of the world. Yeah. Like it just kind of mm-hmm. is. Like we're both doing completely different things now. And we're probably going to be having different conversations in an hour's yeah. time. So like that's okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just there. Yeah. I'm always very vocally will say, this is me, you do you. This is just my choice. Like, and even just say, like, I'm not, I'm not, I have no problem with drinking. Like, I have no problem with people drinking. This is just something that feels good for me. Yeah. I'm just owning my experience. Yeah. You know? I was just going to say, what do you think about the like alcohol prone people versus non alcohol prone people? Because I always think about that with me and Stefania. I'm like, she just, you know, hasn't, doesn't have a natural tendency to do that, whereas I do. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's very interesting because. Growing up as a Brit, working in magazine <coughs> journalism, I'd never encountered anyone who just wasn't really that into alcohol. Like literally everybody I knew was a drinker from my 20s on yeah. and through college as well, right? And it's been really interesting on this sober curious path to encounter many people who were just like, never really liked it. Many people who were like, always drank, always dreaded it. Mm-hmm. Would always like to force myself mm-hmm. through it. And I was like, yeah, does not. And I don't have, you know, and I'm not an addiction expert, right? But I've got Mm. kind of colloquial, like observe observational evidence. I think that the way the way the family drinks Mm -hmm. can have a big impact, like how alcohol was perceived when you're a child, when Mm -hmm. you're growing up. Like my dad was a big drinker, my grandfather was a big drinker, my mom wasn't. She was really into wellness mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have this kind of like split thing right like your the environment that you grew up in mm-hmm. I came up in like the 1990s rave scene in the UK which was extremely hedonistic mm-hmm. um in the era of the kind of like ladettes I, I talk about this in my book it's a phenomenon that you didn't have here in the states but in the kind of like late 90s early noughties which is when I was come with, really coming of drinking age there was this phenomenon called the ladettes and they were basically like feminist young women, but who part of what their part of their feminism was drinking as much as men, like drinking Jack Daniels, drinking pints of lager, like drinking mm-hmm. as hard and as fast as men. Like that was feminist. You know, what messaging you receive as a kid, the circles, the environment you grow up in, all of these things will impact. And then also what, what kind of like traumas you have experienced and how you've the ways that you found to address them. Yeah. They can all have, all these different things have an impact. Yeah. One of the things I know you talk about is in the context of sober first is sober dating and sober sex and relationships, which I think is something for people who are dating that they face. Like I recently was having dinner with a friend who's it drinks and dreads it kind of person or drinks a little bit and is in that camp. And she's like, well, you know, now I'm dating. So twice a week I'm psyching myself up that I have to, it's like, how slowly can I drink each drink? Because I really don't want to be drinking. But I guess, what do you have to say about that piece of it for someone who is finding themselves in the dating scene, having dating related, maybe the opportunity for some sober first, but feeling unsure about it? I think it's a really tough one. 
And again, I don't have personal experience to draw from. This is just from speaking to people in my community. And I say that because, you know, I've been with my husband for like 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, wow. Our dating happened. Get some our... tips on that too. <laughs> <laughs> tips on that too. <laughs> just be nice to each other. Uh, oh. <laughs> no, I don't know. I hope that, that's a whole other book. I kind of want to write a book called How to Stay Married. But then I also think I might come across as the most smug bitch in the world. So I don't know. I, I would totally I read really, that. Yeah. I think you should do it. <laughs> um, but I think that um, my friend Biet, who I used to run my sober events with, she had a really good take on this. She's like, if you're dating because you actively want to meet someone to start a relationship, which many of us are, it's not ev- not why everybody's in it, of course, but for many of us, that's why we're dating. And um, she's like, would you turn up for a jog- job interview drunk? If you turned up for a job interview and the person interviewing you was drunk, would you want to take that job? It's kind of like, what are you actually entering into here? And what self are you presenting Mm -hmm. when you're drinking, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that a big part of it, and I don't know how the apps all work. I think you can say whether you're a drinker or not. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely met some people who are like, if I put non-drinker, I just don't get any dates. I just Mm -hmm. don't get asked out. And I think that's really sad. And I really hope that's going to change. As we get more options for alcohol-free bars, for alcohol-free drinks, yeah. and the stigma starts to break down. Yeah. And I think that partly partly maybe what's happening is like, oh, if they're not drinking, we're probably not going to hook up. Mm. Because how often, and I've heard this as well, I didn't really like him, but, you know, I had another couple of drinks and I just kind of went along with it. Yeah. It's like I've heard that so many times. Yeah. And I just think that, not to judge that, like, this is how we, this is what happens. But at the same time, if what you're entering into the dating for is to start a meaningful relationship with someone, mm-hmm. if you need alcohol to like them enough to make out with them or hook up with them, maybe this isn't like the yeah. relationship you're looking for. Yeah. You know? I think there's also like a little bit of that kind of like societal piece as well, where it's like, even for someone who may not be looking to get drunk or, you know, drink a lot if you're on a date and the order for the drinks is coming and you're not getting one there's that like oh whoa kind of moment for some people so it's like how do we normalize a choice either way yeah exactly I think that one friend you know there are tactical ways she always gets there 10 minutes early so she can order her drink and it's on the table so then she can just be like, I'll just have the same again. Ooh. And if it comes up, yeah. what are you drinking? Then she can have the conversation and mm-hmm. explain why. But it's the moment of yeah. awkwardness is removed. I thought that was quite smart. Yeah. Her drink of choice yeah. is an Arnold Palmer, which okay. kind of looks like a cocktail mm-hmm. or something. So. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's a great one. idea. Another one is just to invite a person into a conversation. Yeah, yeah. I've been trying this, not drinking, and it feels yeah. really great. Yeah. And see if they mm-hmm. want to go there with you. And again, do the thing. No judgment. You drink. Like, I have no, it's not about yeah. that. I'm just like trying mm-hmm. out for myself and mm-hmm. see how the conversation goes. Yeah. You could also suggest meeting up for like, hey, let's go get an ice cream or, yeah. you know, meeting up in places that aren't typically a bar is just the easiest place, right? But it just yeah. is. Again, decision fatigue. We've got so many decisions to make in a day. I'm trying to think about another place yeah. to go on a date. Yeah. Know? And then also, I just want to say that like, even if it's just about hooking up, even if you just want to get laid, I have one friend who she will make Tinder dates for the afternoon just to like hook up, basically. <laughs> and she was, she was like, I always used to have a couple of glasses of wine beforehand because I was just like, this is too risky. 
But now she's been doing it without a drink and she's like, it's even more exciting. It's yeah. even more of a kind of like yeah. freeze on and it's even more kind because of, I can feel all the feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know? And I can yeah. imagine like even those nerves, like they're yes. just more excitement The butterflies there. in this now, like all the things. She's like, it's actually even more exciting yeah. without it. Yeah. So I think, again, we have so many preconceptions and we've got, we've been sold so much programming, Kat, you mentioned programming mm-hmm. about like why we need alcohol and what it's going to do for us. Mm-hmm. But actually, when it's only when we step out of the drinking culture and we do these things without alcohol, we realize, oh, that's not the truth mm-hmm. at all. Like, it's one potential outcome, but it's not necessarily mm-hmm. the be-all and end-all. Yeah. I can yeah. do all of these things without drinking. Yeah. And so a lot of them are better without yeah, alcohol. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> and I think with the dating, it's like I remember when I was younger and dating in New York and, like, drinking was a big part of it even just like the next day feeling like weird or like not fully like feeling that you were present with everything that happened. And it's like going back to that kind of like interview piece of it mm. that you said, it's like, is that really this who I want to show up as? So, but I think that I feel for, you know, younger generations that feel like maybe they haven't found, you know, younger women or even men that feel like maybe they haven't found their voice yet or found their boundaries yet. And it's, and, and kind of navigating all of that. But it's interesting, actually, I just overheard a a couple of people speaking yesterday at a table, younger people, about how they are so over drinking and don't enjoy it. And that if they want to kind of get out of their head, they would choose a different substance once in a while. So what do you think about that? It's like not drinking, but then there are kind of these other substances as well. Like I feel like, and I'm living in California now, like there's like less drinking and like more casual psychedelic use, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a big part of it. I mean, I can people will ask me, so why are more people getting sober curious? I'm like, well, because marijuana is being legalized. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's you know definitely, absolutely, people are finding other substances. As I said, you know, people are finding practices to help them relax, unwind, and socialize that don't have a hangover. And there are other substances that can help with that too. Mm -hmm. And being Mm -hmm. sober curious for me, it's not necessarily about anything being right, wrong, or good, or bad. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily about living a completely substance-free life. It's Mm -hmm. about seeking to really know yourself and your motivation Mm -hmm. and what you need. And also know what these different substances are and what you're getting into it. Like really educate yourself and work mm-hmm. out what's appropriate, you know, for you. Yeah. For me, I, I, I never liked smoking weed. I never liked, it always made me paranoid. It never just agreed with me really. Mm-hmm. I did smoke every day from the age of like 16 to 24, just because again, it's what everyone did, mm-hmm. right? But as soon as I, st- as soon as I encountered one person who was like, I was a roommate with and she didn't smoke. And I was like, you don't smoke? She's like, yeah, I just don't like it. And I was like, do I? And I stopped that day. And there was never any question. There was never any kind of like, oh, wait, I don't have to do this. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so personally, well, I'm kind of like, I really like the, cl- I really like clarity. Even when I want to relax, I don't necessarily find it relaxing anymore to like get out of it. Because mm-hmm. that just feels kind of confusing and weird to mm-hmm. me. We'll never say never. Actually, I had a glass of red wine a couple of weeks ago, and it was the first time in over a year. I had just been, I'd been on the road traveling intensely. I'd done like tons of events. I was just exhausted, and my period was a week late. And I just kind of sensed that like a glass of red wine would actually just kind of relax, mm-hmm. be like almost like a muscle relaxant mm-hmm. to help with the flow. Yeah. And it totally worked. I couldn't even mm. drink the whole glass because mm. halfway through I was like, oh, that's enough of that. <laughs> Which is so wow. opposite to how I used to be, right? Yeah. 
Um, So yeah, still I kind of see alcohol, I see all of these things as like medicines. And I think to myself, when is, what's an appropriate use for this medicine? And when is it abuse? And I think so often it's so easy to veer into abuse because we have to be super conscious about like what we actually need and what this substance is going to give us, you Mm -hmm. know? So it's it's a really interesting time. It's a really interesting subject. I do, I'm absolutely pro abstinence and I do believe that ultimately we have everything we need within us mm-hmm. and that there's a practice to bring us whatever we need sometimes we don't have the time sometimes that quick fix is okay yeah and for me and I know you talked about this again in the book too is like when I think about alcohol it's like oh I'm it, it'll make me so inspired or I'll get more creative when I'm drinking alcohol or have more confidence or better connections. Um, How has that changed for you since becoming sober curious and like being able to feel those feelings naturally without having to use a substance? I think, yeah, I think I've just realized that actually if I, if I'm making life choices that are really aligned for me, how I'm spending my time, who I'm spending my time with, media I'm consuming, food I'm consuming, the practices I'm engaging in, then I am inspired and I am creative and I am connected and I am confident. But it's about getting all of those pieces in place, right? And I think that I can now see how I used alcohol as a shortcut to what felt like inspiration and connection. Mm -hmm. It's not certain get some brilliant ideas, drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Was I going to follow through on them? Yeah, not so much, you know? <laughs> we yeah. all have those conversations where it's like, oh my God, we should do this. It'd be so amazing. And then like next day, tumble, call, <laughs> yeah. no one makes the first yeah. move. It's like, oh, maybe not. Yeah. And I think one of the most surprising things was how much more confident I feel without alcohol because mm-hmm. I had used it definitely as a way to feel confident. Like I said, that relationship I was in, it really robbed me a lot of, of a lot of my self-esteem and it took a lot to get myself out of the relationship and um, alcohol was something I leaned on heavily then and so I guess I associated alcohol with feeling confident but what surprised me is that when I removed it and I confronted some of these sober firsts I got really uncomfortable and it was okay and I put myself in these kind of weird situations engaging in these different practices with these different people and it was okay I think slowly I began to realize that actually confidence is always an inside job it's always something we have to cultivate Mm -hmm. for ourselves and that anytime we use anything external to make us feel more confident, we're getting into risky territory because what happens if we don't have that theme? Yeah. Even if it's like a ton of Instagram followers, if I'm mm-hmm. basing my confidence or self-esteem on how many Instagram followers I have, that's completely unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Instagram could die tomorrow. Yeah. They could all be following me because they hate me. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So it's like, yeah, it's really helped me realize that confidence comes from the inside and it's a result of having really solid connections with people who do really love you putting work into the world that you feel really inspired and like it's a real reflection of who you are those kinds of things you know being honest in your relationships mm-hmm. repairing your relationships where maybe there's kind of like been stuff that's been shoved under the carpet one of the other things that we were we thought was pretty interesting that we saw that you have spoken about publicly is in the relationship realm, and I know you just said you might be writing a book, so this is related, <laughs> that you and your relationship have taken what you called a relationship sabbatical. Yes. Can you tell us you about really that? You did your research. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that was in 2008. Okay. I had been with my husband. We'd been married for about seven years 
have we been married? For, no, we've been together for about seven years by that point. So it's a kind of classic seven-year itch. And I think, you know, I met, I had come out of this really one long relationship, met him six months after we got married after a year. I hadn't really had much time single. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really done much dating. Mm-hmm. And I think I got to like, yeah, I guess I was around 30. And I got to a point where I was a bit like, oh, wait, hold on. Is this it? <laughs> like, really? You know, <laughs> is this it forevermore? I love this person deeply. Whoa, did I leap into this too fast? Mm. And we, he was going through some work challenges and things just to kind of, it's almost like the initial rose-tinted kind of sheen of the relationship had worn off, as it does for so many people, right? Every relationship mm-hmm. goes through these ebbs and flows when you're like super, super in love and they can do no wrong and it's just like, whoa. And then you'll kind of be like, oh, wait, you what? <laughs> and then you'll come back on, on another upswing. And I think that's just how relationships go and it happens in friendships and it happens in business partnerships and mm-hmm. all kinds of relationships. As we we change at different pace rates, I suppose, and as well, I was going through a real kind of career thing. I'd had a, a newspaper job that had been really awful. I'd been bullied really badly. I'd only made it nine months in this job, and mm. I was just again, my self esteem was real real low. And I decided to take a career sabbatical, mm. and I decided what I was going to do was go and live in a for the summer. <laughs> And maybe write a book or something, like pursue something that felt more like it was mm-hmm. more aligned yeah. with me. And I put some feelers out and a guy who owned a magazine out there offered me a job editing his magazine for the summer. I was like, oh, well, this is now a done deal. Yeah. I'm going to go. And well, I guess I'm going because my husband couldn't quit his job for like eight months or whatever. <laughs> so I was like, I'm just going to go. Yeah. So I took off and spent the summer in Ibiza editing this magazine. And we didn't really see each other much that summer. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of an opportunity for us to take a break, reflect, work out where we were going next, like take some individual time to kind of like do our thing. And it definitely wasn't easy, but ultimately it, it gave us both enough space to kind of like reestablish ourselves as individuals in mm-hmm. the relationship which I think is so, so important. And yeah. I do think thinking about like how to stay married well, one way is don't have all of your eggs in each other's baskets. Like have your own life. Yeah. Have your own mm-hmm. life. That make your own life exactly mm-hmm. what you want it to be and then come together and merge that life with yeah. this other person's life. You know? Yeah. I think that's been one thing that we've done just quite naturally. And the sabbatical was definitely part of that. So yeah, I recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I mean, yeah. I recommend it, but also at the same time, we have a unique relationship and yeah, it wouldn't necessarily work for everyone, mm-hmm. but it worked for us. And he actually then, after I'd come back about a year later, went off and did like a six week solo trip around South America, couch yeah. surfing around South America to get his kind of fix of a similar thing. Yeah. You know, he quit his job by that point, which was great and took his own break. So yeah, I think it's just really important in, in relationships to, acknowledge that you are individuals and that you have you need different things at different times yeah and to give each other the freedom to be yourselves you know yeah it's interesting because it feels like that was also very in flow for you and maybe you were kind of following a flow or an intuition led thing because when you mentioned that you put some feelers out and then just got this editing job like that seems pretty unlikely it was super flowy and I remind myself of that time whenever I'm feeling kind of stuck it was a time where my brain couldn't figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. So the only way forward was just to quit and take a leap. 
<laughs> I quit this job with no job lined up, didn't know what I was going to do, was just like, I'm just going to see mm-hmm. what happens. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, at age, like my late 20s, it's, I didn't have kids, I still don't have kids, but it didn't have that many responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Like it was kind of an easier age to do that. Mm-hmm. And it really worked out. Yeah. It was a real kind of like, here you are. And then from that, you know, that summer, I ended up spending some time with someone who worked on this magazine I really loved. And he knew I would be looking for something when I got back. And I ended up getting a job there doing a maternity cover for somebody. And then that led to a full-time job there. So I kind of wound up in my dream magazine job mm-hmm. at the end of that summer as well. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. What are some of the ways now that you kind of maintain that, like having your own lives and being your whole selves individually? For me, it still is a lot of travel. Mm. Like, you know, I do quite a lot of traveling. Lots of it's for work now, but I do a lot of that on my own Mm -hmm. and take trips to see family on my own Mm -hmm. and just kind of, although it has been like, so so my husband quit his corporate job this year and we've now been co-working at home together, Mm. which is quite a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're like hanging out together in the evenings working all day together so we're kind of actively talking at the moment about how to create more space Mm -hmm. for each other within that yeah and yeah yeah again it's like it's just always a conversation and being honest about what we need and Mm -hmm. when things start to feel a bit crunchy like acknowledging that and not freaking out about it or making it anybody's fault yeah it's just like Mm -hmm. this is what's going on so what could we try you know yeah totally yeah I think that's so important to just have your own thing in a relationship yeah. and and like, like we've always had quite separate friend groups mm-hmm. you know we don't necessarily merge together yeah. as part of a big friend group we mm-hmm. have people I have all my friends then he has his friends and sometimes they, we meet in the middle yeah. but usually not actually mm-hmm. so although it, it's weird right you could look at that and say well that's kind of odd that's kind of weird but actually it really works for us yeah yeah it's great I'm like that too yeah I like like a lot of times even because I'm from the U.S. obviously but like when I go back there I will go by myself because I think it's also very different I mean it's not it's it's just the way that it works out as well but it's just different to you know see your friends your girlfriends that you haven't seen in a while by yourself versus with your partner I think that it's just a very different experience not that I wouldn't want him there but and it's yeah you know, like with the numinous you know I've met so many people so many practitioners so many retreat leaders and so I have these kind of all these numinous activities that I engage in with people outside of my marriage mm-hmm. I can bring my sort of healed expanded self back into the marriage which is great and you know Simon's found his own ways to touch him with these different things too yeah I have I've had some really life-changing experiences that he's not been part of yeah and I think that's really important that's yeah. really good yeah. <laughs> yeah that's not me leaving him out or me going off and you know abandoning him that's me filling my own cup so that in the marriage I can really show up as the wife I want to be. Yeah. And I think then that's also a reflection of like setting your own expectations for yourself versus expectations that others may have of your relationship. Cause I've seen mm. that in my own life as well as in others. Like maybe there are family or even friend expectations of like when you, sh- your partner should be there or mm. not. And really? I think that like really bringing it back to like, what do I really care about and want is, and what are the expectations that I have for myself separate from all of those things is really important there's so much when and and the the sober curious thing has really helped me see this 
again, coming back to the idea of programming, we're mm-hmm. programmed about everything. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. once we begin to question it, we really begin to realize like how deeply entrenched that is and mm-hmm. how controlling it is as mm-hmm. well over how we live our lives and the choices we make. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just, I, you know, you mentioned when people experimenting with psychedelics, that's one way that people begin to question oh, I thought the world looked like this, but no, it can look like this or like this or like that. Or like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, how ex- how amazing. Yeah. I could make completely different choices and live a completely different life. Nobody told me that. Yeah. Well, no, they didn't. Did you work that out? Yeah. And more and more of us are working that out, which I think is really exciting. But again, it's also destabilizing. Right. To realize, whoa, the world is not what I thought it would was. Yeah. The world could be anything I want it to be. That sounds really exciting. And it's yeah it's like you're losing some of those comforts but you're gaining so much freedom Mm -hmm. and I think that like when you start to come into that to realize like how free you can really what you really are I think is so powerful and I think doing some of this work and the things that we've been talking about can like really help us get there and like for me it's something like in the past few years like I've really been taking to the next level and exploring and it just feels so free that like I don't have to do something for any reason other than like what I feel is mm-hmm. right for me. Mm. You know? I mean, a really big example of that for me has been choosing not to have kids. Mm. Like I knew from when I was very young, that I didn't want to be a parent. Mm-hmm. Like I knew I didn't want that to be my life. And even saying it now, I'm like, that makes me sound like a bitch. That makes me sound really selfish because the programming is mm. a woman who doesn't want to be a parent. There's something wrong with her. She's mm. lacking her maternal instincts. She's like cold, heartless, right? And I've just always known that it wasn't my path. Yeah. And it's been interesting kind of walking that. Living in a city like New York is, I think it's one of the reasons I like it here. There's not that same pressure, yeah. I think, on women to conform to a certain family structure or a certain kind of relationship structure in a way. But yeah, it's been very, and, I, and again, thinking about our marriage, I think that's one of the reasons our marriage is mm-hmm. where it is because... Mm-hmm. We've got the real, we've got all the time and energy to invest in each other and in our relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like it's it's so unfair and sort of Mm -hmm. sad when that expectation is put on women because, you know, even for you, like you have put so much into the world, like you've sort of like birthed all of these things into the world (laughs) and put so much out there that's helping so many people. Like that is so important women are bringing more things into the world than children. Children are great, but like there are so many more things to be brought into this world. Absolutely. And we need so yeah. many more women like bringing their whole selves, meaning all of their energy, attention, focus to industry, to yeah. tech, yeah. to yeah. like all of these systems, politics that have so much of an influence on our world, yeah. which is not to say, and then again, I'll like compare myself, but there are tons of women with kids who do all of that too. Maybe I'm just like, lazy or lacking well actually what we don't see is that a lot of those people with kids have very staunch and robust childcare mm-hmm. in the form of nannies in the form of close-knit families and all of that stuff to kind of help mm-hmm. to care for the children and I think there's a huge expectation on women to do it all yeah right? to have it all, yeah mm-hmm. to have the career to have the kids honestly I I think unless you've got a very secure financial setup I think that's not the reality for the majority of people mm-hmm. something always mm-hmm. something's always going to slip yeah yeah, and maybe they're doing it just because it's like the programming again. It's like, oh, well, this is what I'm supposed to do or my parents will be mad or whatever it is. So I think that it's not for everyone and it doesn't have to be. And that's the message that 
you know, I, like you were saying, like more women should be comfortable to kind of come out and just help people and everyone in other ways versus, you know, directly having a child. Exactly. There is a whole chapter on that in my first book, which mm-hmm. I'm really happy I got to include that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, we're coming up on our time. What are you excited about next? I'm excited for 2020. It's just got a good ring to it, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's going to be kind of a game changer year. Obviously, we have an election happening, so mm-hmm. it'll be very interesting to see how that all plays out. In the UK, yeah. there's like Brexit happening, mm-hmm. so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I just feel like there'll be some forward motion next year. Mm-hmm. And this is based on astrological happenings. It's based on the tarot sort of like forecasts for the year of 2020 but I think it's going to be a year when we feel more empowered to make positive action take positive action in the world I feel like 2019 has been a bit of a holding pen a lot of people I know have been like dropping projects left right and center yeah. and it feels like there's been a clearing of like let's actually get make space mm-hmm. yeah. and create and can cultivate the energy to put into what really counts and I think that's going to happen in 2020 so I'm just excited yeah to see what the year brings yeah Cool. Amazing. Thank you so much. Also, thank you for, we had some technical difficulties at the beginning, so we worked all that out, but thank you so much. This was so awesome. And we're both so excited to meet you and get to talk to you. Cool. It was lovely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ruby. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share it with a friend and hit subscribe. So you never miss a show.